in regard to how God is in times of chaos, in times of confusion, in times of distress. You know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been there with him. He's been there with you in those times and you have seen him do what he does. But then there's some of you who says, I really don't understand what you're talking about. I really don't, can't relate to that statement because I've never seen God operate that way. So just for the purposes of illustration, uh, I'd like for you to take a look at these very familiar distressing situations and see how God responds in these two familiar distressing situations. Now, let me warn you that these two, we're going to watch two video clips. If I get somebody in just a moment to turn the lights off, uh, let me warn you about this. These videos are just illustrations, and so they may not uh, completely accurately depict the scene as we know it from Scripture. Okay, I just want to give that disclaimer, so don't think that I'm saying that this is the Bible. I'm just doing this so that I can illustrate to you how God works in tough times. So watch these two clips. Now, first one is a little under four minutes. Second one's only two minutes. So it's only a total of six minutes. We're not going to be watching videos for the next 30 minutes. I do have a few things to say. <laughs> but I do want to show you this. Would you, would you watch these with me? Not working? Oh, there we go. That's Joshua's horn. All men to the past. Get carts, wagons. Form the barrier. What's the alarm, Joshua? Arrows, chariots, block the pass with carts. Women and children to the sea. Big shovels, alders, Maddox. Hear me, hear me. Can Maddox stop arrows? Will your little cart stop Paris chariots? You will him. You want to see your men killed? Moses. This is Joshua. What is it? Arrows, chariots. I've ordered men to block the pass. How can we fight chariots? Nothing can stop them. Order the men to move back, Joshua. Oh. Move back? Where? Into the sea? Into the hand of God. Deliverer. Yes, he has delivered you to death. Look! Look! Blame Moses for this! Deliver him to peril! Moses is a poor general to leave him no retreat. Ten times you have seen the miracles of the Lord and still you have no faith. He's a false prophet who delivers you to death. Don't him! Don't him! Charging chariot knows no rank. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the wilderness? Fear not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord.
You cannot preach the fire of God. in your flocks. We must go with all speed. Yes. Go where? To drown in the sea? How long will the fire hold Pharaoh back? Will it hold? After this day, you shall see his chariots no more. No! You'll be dead under them. The Lord of hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand. trapped at the Red Sea. Everybody is counting them out in the crowd. It's chaos. Pharaoh's on their trail. And God uses, it's, Moses is not God, but God uses Moses to respond in chaos as God always does. The second one now. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And as they were sailing, he fell asleep. faces and they witness Jesus you can turn the lights back on when they witness Jesus or this person who is portraying Jesus calm the storm in chaos that's the way our God 
responds. In these clips, we see two things. First thing we see is how God responds in times of distress. And then secondly, we see how man often, not always, but often responds in times of distress. So you say, well, how does this relate? It's because we're in John. Well, I think I can tie it in together. Because fresh off of the high priestly prayer of John 17, we're now in chapter 18 of John. And Jesus makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane for what appears to be a distressing and desperate situation and an encounter with people that are coming to do him harm. The question before us now is how does Jesus, who of course is God in the flesh, and the others in this passage in John 18, how do they respond? When I read this text, a strange title comes to my mind. And that title is A Sovereign Substitute. A sovereign substitute is how I tag this text. It's strange. This title is strange because the phrase sovereign substitute seems to be counterintuitive and contradictory. Though it seems to be this way, uh, at first glance, when we first hear it, a sovereign substitute, it seems to be contradictory at first glance. But Actually, it's very befitting of someone who is both lion and lamb. To be sovereign denotes supremacy or superiority, while to be a substitute suggests subordination or submission. In Jesus, we have both. And we see both on display from Jesus in John 18. From everybody else in this passage, we see some different things. But from Jesus we see this sovereign substitute. So as we continue, I'd like to examine the three movements that I see in this text. First, God's sovereignty. Second, man's, watch this, there's a lot of Fs coming up, right? Man's frailty, faultiness, fragility, and fickleness. First, God's sovereignty. Second, man's Fs. I won't read that list again. I'm going to talk about it later. And then lastly, God's grace and his mercy. Those are the three, three movements that I see happening in John 18 as we examine this chapter uh, at large as a whole body of work. We look at it and I, those are the things that jump off the pages at me. First, let's look at God's sovereignty. As we look at God's sovereignty, we see it come to life in Verses 1 through 14, verses 19 through 24, and verses 28 through 37, and lastly in verse 38, the first part of that verse. I'm not going to read all of that, but I want to talk about some of it. Uh, first of all, verses 1 through 3. Let me read that. Verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 18. It says this. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The words that he had just prayed in John 17, or we can back it all the way up and say the words that he started talk, saying to them back in John chapter 14, ending with the prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, as we read those first three verses, it does not sound like it's going to go well for Jesus. Here's Judas who has betrayed him for some money. He's gathered together a band of soldiers and people that have come to arrest Jesus. They've got lanterns, they've got torches, and they have weapons. It sounds like they're coming to do Jesus harm. Doesn't sound good. Uh, If I had not shown you those video clips or if you didn't have your own personal history with Jesus, you might be inclined to think that he was in a world of trouble and that all of this caught him off guard. But because I know that all of us, uh, most of us have had our own personal experiences with Jesus, you know, like I know that that's not the case. Because you just watched those video clips of Jesus and God doing miraculous things in times of distress. You know that this garden experience didn't catch him off guard. If you don't know that, he helps us to see that in verses 4 through 7. Because in verse 4, he immediately clears up any doubt that he is still sovereign. He clears it up. He shows us. And displays his sovereignty. Look at what happens in, the, in verse 4. The verse, first part of verse 4, look at what happens. After this troubling news, verse 4 says this, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom seek you? Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Nothing about this night took him by surprise. It says that he, knowing all that would happen, he didn't run away. He didn't try to avoid or evade those that were coming. He didn't try to do that. He didn't even call down help from heaven as he said that he could do in Matthew chapter 26. He said in in that rendition of this account of the night in the garden, Jesus says to Peter, if, if I wanted to, I could call my father and he would send 12 legions of angels. He says, I'm not interested in that. I'm on my way to the cross and nothing will get in my way. He, he displays for us his sovereignty because he, even in the midst of chaos, is still under control. His response to their response, they ask him, he asked them, whom seek ye? And they say this, Jesus of Nazareth in verse 5. And his response is yet another declaration of his deity that we see all throughout the Gospels because Jesus responds as he responded in John 8, 58, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. He says here, he responds, they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am he. Here's the interesting thing about what what happens when he says that. Not only if, if, if if his saying it does not convince us of his sovereignty and his deity, their reaction to what he says ought to. Because in verse 6, When Jesus says those three words, I am he. Here's the interesting thing. If you go back to verse 3, 
it says that Judas came with a band of soldiers. A band of soldiers was somewhere between 400 and 600 valiant, courageous Roman soldiers with weapons, with lanterns, with torches who were coming to do Jesus harm, to take him into custody. Courageous warriors. And Jesus says three words, I am he. And all 600 of them fall to the ground because there was power in what he said. They couldn't stand when those words came out of his mouth. They had to fall to the ground because there was sovereignty and deity and power and authority in Jesus. And so they fall to the ground and we see his sovereignty on display. Verse 8 is the first time in this passage that we see both sovereignty and substitution in the same place. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Let's read it together. Verse 8 says this, Jesus answered. After he tells them who he is, they fall to the ground. Second time, he says, whom do you seek? And then he answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, if you seek me, let these men go. It's the very first time that we see both sovereignty and substitution working together in the same place. Uh, So then if sovereignty is marked by authority, control, and calmness, substitution is marked by compassion, love, and obedience. Jesus here repeats the I am of verse 5, but then he does something very special. He comes forth and offers himself in order to protect his disciples. He says, take me and let them go. I see here this picture, his protection here of his disciples, of his apostles, was a perfect illustration of his substitutionary atonement. All of us ought to be able to relate to that because it's what he did for us. Jesus comes forth and says, let them go. I'll take their place. Uh, He would not only give his life for them, but instead he would not only give his life for them, but instead of them is what he did. He said, take me. He was on a mission. In verse 10, verses 10 and 11, his sovereignty shows up again in his commitment to the bitter cup of the cross. He would not let anything stand in his way, even Peter's attempt to intervene. Verse 10 is where Peter, let's read it. Verse 10, let's read verse 10 together. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 11, so Jesus said, no, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Peter tries, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but Peter tries to intervene. Jesus says, no, I am in control of this. This is not taking me by surprise. And I am pressing my way somewhere and nothing will interfere with my mission. And then uh, in verses 12 through 14, 19 through 24, 28 through 38 is where the trial, the events of the trial take place. I'm not going to read that. You can read it in in your free time, in your devotional time. Uh, But let me just say this. These verses give us a record of what happens 
in the trial. They take, they take Jesus into custody in, in the night in the garden, and then they march him to first see Annas, and from Annas they march him to see Caiaphas, and from Caiaphas they march him and put him in front of Pilate, and the trial happens, and the record of that trial is covered in these verses. There were, thing about the trial was there were several illegalities and violations which should have resulted in the trial being declared a mistrial. The trial in itself was illegal, not to mention that the one accused was not guilty, but the trial should have been declared a mistrial. Let me tell you some of the reasons why. First of all, it was illegal to hit an unconvicted person. And you'll recognize and realize that in verse 22, Jesus is struck on the face because of one of Annas' assistants didn't like how Jesus answered a question. Thought he was being smart, and so he strikes him. That alone should have created a mistrial. That was illegal to do. Arrest also could not be made legally at night. That was against the law. The time and the date of the trial were illegal because it took place at night and on the eve of the Sabbath. That should have created it, should, should have caused it to be a mistrial. This time precluded any chance for the required adjournment to the next day in the event of a conviction. Then next, a guilty sentence could only be handed down on the day following the trial. That was a violation. The Sanhedrin was without authority to instigate charges. It was only supposed to investigate charges brought before it. In Jesus' trial, the court itself formulated the charges. That should have caused a mistrial. The requirement of two witnesses in agreement to merit the death penalty was not met. There were no witnesses. That should have caused a mistrial. The court did not meet in, reg in the regular meeting place of the Sanhedrin as required by Jewish law. That should have caused a mistrial. Christ was not permitted a defense under Jewish law. An exhaustive search into the facts presented by the witnesses should have occurred. It didn't happen, and that should have caused a mistrial. All of these things were done that should have caused this not to go forward. In spite of all the illegalities, the lies, the mistreatment, Jesus maintained his composure and further, as he did that, affirmed his sovereignty. So the first movement that we see in the text is God's sovereignty. We see that on full display as we look at Jesus and how he responds to this distressing, seemingly distressing situation. Uh, but ne the next one that we see after we look at God's sovereignty, the next one is those ifs I mentioned to you earlier. Next movement I see is man's faultiness, man's frailty, man's fragility, man's fickleness. We see this on full display in verse 10, starting there, but then in some other verses. So look at, let's look at verse 10 first. First in verse 10, uh, we just read that a few minutes ago where Peter tries to intervene in what's happening to Jesus. Uh, but he does so using faulty thinking. And his faulty thinking leads him to respond spontaneously. And it's usually not a good idea to respond spontaneously. Some of us ought to be able to witness to that. It's not usually a good idea to just do something uh, off the top of our head without giving it some thought and so Peter is known for doing that, and he does that here, and it causes problems. He responds in the wrong way. He didn't, he, 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 it, it's been said that he really was trying to kill Malchus. Malchus. His, his intent was to cut his head off. 
But he was so angry and so spontaneous, and he, he just missed the mark. And he, instead of cutting his head off, he cut his ear off. So he, in utilizing faulty thinking, he responds spontaneously in the wrong way. He didn't give thought to the fact that Jesus had foretold this day many times and prepared all of his apostles and disciples for this very day. He forgot that Jesus had already told them he was coming to this. He just was not thinking, but he acted on impulse. And I submit to each of you today that when you act on impulse, it will oftentimes, most of the time, result in some trouble. Uh, then verses, in verses 15 through 18 and 25 through 27 is where we see Peter deny Christ three times. He decides to follow Jesus. Let's read 15 through 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That other disciple, by the way, is John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter, so John goes in, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, servant and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So Peter says, Peter, Peter keeps his promise. He follows Jesus. Because remember, in John 13, 37, Peter says to Jesus, as Jesus is sharing the events that were to come this very day, Peter says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere, even to death. I will follow you. And, Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, shut up, Peter. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And so Peter has good intentions. And so when they take Jesus into custody, he follows Jesus, but he follows him from afar. Right? He's trying to be safe. He's trying not to get too close. And then not only does he follow him from afar, he only goes so far. He stops at the door while John and Jesus are in uh, the courtroom, if you will. Peter is at the door hiding, trying not to be seen. Suddenly, Peter's bravery and spunk that he had not long ago has turned to frailty and fragility. All of a sudden, he's not courageous anymore. All of a sudden, he's now a coward. It's a demonstration of how fragile and frail man's commitment to God can be. If we become self-sufficient, spiritually negligent, and underestimate the power of sin, this is what happens to Peter. Uh, remember that in the other accounts of this, Jesus had said to his disciples, watch and pray. I'm going to go away, but watch and pray. For one hour, Jesus comes back, and all of them, rather than praying, are asleep. And I submit to you that this was what caused, part of what causes, causes Peter's fragility and frailty in how he decides to follow Jesus. He had not, rather than praying, he had been sleeping. 
And I told you last week that prayerlessness is one of man's greatest faults when we should be praying and we're doing something else. It will always lead to our commitment to God not being where it should be. So he keeps his distance. He stays at the door. Peter, Peter, though, wasn't the only one in this passage who got it wrong. Of course, we know Judas got it wrong because he betrayed Jesus. Right. And he in the other Gospels, it says that he betrays him when he shows up with a kiss. He betrays him with the kiss and he betrays him for a small amount of money. So that was more important to him than his relationship. But Peter and Judas are not the only ones who got it wrong in this text. We also see the fickleness of the Jews in this text. In verses 38b through 40a, we see this on display. Let me read it real quick. 38b says this. It says, uh, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews. This is after Pilate speaks. And, and, and told them, I find no guilt in him, no guilt in Jesus, but you have a custom that I should release one, one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man. Right? Here it is. You talk about being fickle. Part of this group was likely the same ones who just a few days ago were yelling out at the top of their lungs, Hosanna in the highest. On this day, Palm Sunday, this day in history, though the, the ones who were outside the judgment hall, when Pilate comes out and says, I find no fault in this man. Who do you want me to release? They say, crucify Jesus and release Barabbas. These were likely some of those same folk. We were there when Jesus made his triumphal entry. They were shouting and they were rejoicing. And only a few days later, Sister Martha, in the, in the, in the face of adversity, in the face of difficulty, only uh, how committed are we to Christ? When hard times come, does our loyalty to Christ turn to us denying him? Do we say Hosanna on Sunday? Let me bring it down to our level. And something else Monday through Saturday. When the world comes calling, do we forsake and forget that Jesus is our king when given a choice? They were given a choice. When given a choice, do we choose Jesus. They said, not him. We don't want him. When Jesus came into the world, he came in fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecies concerning the Messiah. He came to establish the kingdom of God in the world and to liberate the people of God. Yet when he came, they refused to have him and demanded that he be put to death. He came for them, but they deny him. And demand that he be crucified. This bring us, brings us then to the third and final movement of this passage. First one, we see God's sovereignty. The second one, we see all of those F's, frailty, fragility, faultiness, and fickleness. Last one, we see God's grace and mercy. And it's recorded right here at the, in the very last, last verse of this chapter, in the very last part of this verse, verse 40 
the, uh, the B section, the last section, here's what it says. It says, they cried out again. I just read that. Not this man, but Barabbas. Then it closes with this. Barabbas was a robber. They want Barabbas. Barabbas, uh, let's talk a little bit about him in the couple of minutes I have left. Uh, each of the Gospels describe Barabbas differently. John contains the least detail concerning Barabbas, referring to Barabbas as a robber or a revolutionary. In Matthew's Gospel, Barabbas is a notorious prisoner. Uh, Mark's Gospel, Barabbas is a rebel or an insurrectionist. In Luke's Gospel, he leads an ins- insurrection. Mark and Luke both mention Barabbas as a committed murderer. The Gospels mention the tradition, though, of releasing a prisoner in honor of the Passover, thus Pilate gives the Jewish crowd an opportunity to free Jesus. They choose a criminal instead. The idea then of sovereign, of a sovereign substitute shows up again here at the end of chapter 18 as God's grace and mercy are extended to Barabbas. He who is guilty is set free and he who is innocent and spotless takes his place. Because of this, Barabbas became an exemplification of the effects of substitutionary atonement. So history does not tell us what became of Barabbas. So his story presents us with two possible scenarios. Here's the first one. He quite possibly could have been so profoundly impacted by God's grace and mercy, that he decided to turn his life around and become a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. Barabbas could have very likely, could have been, I'm not saying this is fact, he could have likely, he could have, maybe not likely, but he could have been present on the day of Pentecost. He could have been in the upper room when Jesus showed up after his resurrection. I don't know if he was or not, but it's possible that when Jesus set him free and took his place, that it so profoundly impacted his life that he did a 180 and went from what he used to do and how he used to walk to now following Jesus. Or the second scenario is that Barabbas could have went right back to killing and stealing and doing everything that he used to do. And so as we look at the life of Barabbas, we don't really know what happened to him. We don't know. History doesn't tell us where he went after this. We can, we can guess. We can surmise. We can, we can do all of that and think what, what might have happened. But what I do know is the story of what happened to Barabbas gives all of us two options. When we think about how God has impacted our lives, when we think about what he has done for us, when we think about that one frock, he got up on an old rugged cross for you and for me, and he died until the sun refused to shine. He died until the moon dripped with blood. He died until the veil was rent. When we think about that, how do we respond? How do we respond? We can either follow him and commit our lives to him, or we can go back to what we were doing. Now, I know we don't know Barabbas' history, but we do know Peter's. And if you can't use Barabbas as a story to apply to your own life, look at Peter. Peter fails in John 18. Brother Sam, he fails miserably. He denies Christ three times. 
but we have his history. All you got to do is go to Acts chapter 2, and you'll find out that Peter is forgiven, he's restored, and he preaches the inaugural message of the New Testament church and brings the house down. The same Peter that ought to say something to you and me. If God can forgive and use a Peter and maybe a Barabbas, certainly he can use a Ricky. Let's pray because I'm way over my time. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, for your kindness. Thank you that you're never phased. Thank you that you always respond in the right way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If there be one here that would have a desire to come and surrender to Jesus, we invite you to do so.